so excited that everybody's here this morning, and thank you for plugging back in. We've got Torah devotionals. I was uh, dealing with the publisher during the week, and they're a little bit uh, just making sure that I'm still on track to get the manuscript there by March 31st. And if you keep track of the calendar, I've written the devotionals up through about November 15th. So I, I don't really know how many I have to finish each day, but I've got to do December and the rest of November. So keep me in your prayers and thoughts. Not so much that I get it done. The goal's not to get it done. The goal is to come up with um, an end result that will bless people. So I want you to be praying about it, and I want you to pray about it in two regards, especially as I move into the editing phase. One of the things that, and, uh, that I'm concerned about is who the audience is going to be. And I see two main audiences for this book. One audience are you guys. You guys have let me teach it. You guys have been diligent in giving me support. I've gotten some great emails and some great ideas. And I've, I've gotten some marvelous stuff from you guys. You guys have stood with me in prayer. So that, that is one audience. Is we'll give each of you a copy when it comes out. Uh, if you want more than one copy, uh, you you got to buy them. But... <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll give you the first one, and you ought to read it first because you may not want more than one copy. You may be saying, putting this on eBay. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, so you're one of my audiences, but, but I have a whole different audience. I want this book to be read by Jewish um, folks. And so I'm writing it real hard uh, to, to, uh, I'm, I'm writing it real hard. Yeah, I'm using a number two pencil. It keeps breaking the lead. I'm writing it real hard. I'm, I'm writing it with a, a very directed effort at presenting what I think is good biblical devotional material from the law and yet recognizing without being offensive about it such that... that a Jewish person won't just say, ah, oh, this is just some Christianizing of the law. I'm trying very hard to insert the important Christian concepts, but do it in a way that, that, that is educational and perhaps even a, an open door for the Spirit to touch people's hearts and minds as they read through it. So to do that takes a little bit of... of um, delicate writing, and I'm not the most delicate writer. I tend to write like a sledgehammer. So if you could help me by continuing to pray and uh, give me your thoughts, I appreciate it. So with that said, this morning we're going to look at some devotionals. The goal behind the book, of course, is not only to be devotional, but it's also to be educational. So it's a teaching book as well. So this morning we've got our Torah devotionals just Keep us all on the same page, and because some people randomly watch these on the internet and haven't watched them all. The Jewish Old Testament, well, the Jewish Bible, to the Christians, the Old Testament, is called, the Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh. Now, Tanakh means, in essence, uh, uh, nothing. It is a put-together word. Here, get Tanakh up there. It is a word that's put together from the three separate sections of the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish scriptures are divided into three groups. The first group is the Torah. It's the Jewish word for law. The Torah is Matthew, uh, Matthew Genesis, Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of our Old Testament. The second group of writings, not the law, the second group of writings are called the Nevi'im. And I just can't get my fonts to translate into this computer back there very well. So that M belongs up on the line above it after the second I. I am is a plural ending in Hebrew. So those are, the Nevi'im are the prophets. And that's Joshua. We think of Joshua as a history book in the Christian Bible. But in the Old Testament, Jewish writings, Joshua is a prophetic book. So Joshua all the way up through Malachi. And then the last section is called the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim is Hebrew for just other writings. And so these are this the wisdom literature, some historic literature, what we would call first and second chronicles, that's included in the writings. So what this devotional book does is it concentrates on the Torah. Now, how many of you have ever done a read through the Bible plan for at least 3 days? Okay, a lot of you. Read through the Bible plans are fantastic. Um, and, 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 and they generally, let's just say the path through Leviticus is strewn with dead corpses of read through the Bible plan people. So we've got that. But if you were a practicing Jew, you might be reading through the Bible with a Jewish read through the Bible plan. But they don't read through the Bible Practicing Jews, most, many, read through the Torah each year. Some of them are a little more loosey-goosey. They read through it in three years. There are three-year reading plans. But those with a one-year reading plan, they read about three or four chapters a week. You got me? Now, what I've tried to do is do the devotional book where I am working through in the same weeks that the Jewish reader would be reading through if they were reading through the Torah in their reading plan. Now, if you think about it, that makes this somewhat challenging because of two things. First of all, before I decided to do it that way, I'd written 17 devotionals on Genesis 1, two, and three. And now all of a sudden, I have to throw ten of them away because there's only seven days that I get to cover that material. So that's one of the challenges is there's some rich material and, and, and you have to decide. The other challenge is where two of the four chapters you're writing on is there were 3,417 sons of this, of sons of that, of sons of her and him and them. And you have this chronology, genealogy, and then you, you, that's two chapters. And then the next two chapters are don't boil a goat in his mother's milk and other nice oddities of the law. Now, as a Christian, and I can't speak as a Jew because I'm not a Jew. But as a Christian, I can tell you the tendency would be to flee from those scriptures. 
they are the ones that have the dead corpses of read through the Bible plans next to them. And yet, we read something like Psalm 19.7 that says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you know what the word for law is in Hebrew? Torah. The psalmist is saying, and Psalms is in the Ketavim, it's in a different section. The psalmist is saying that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are perfect. That they revive the soul. That they make wise the simple. And if that's the case, even though the path through those books is littered with corpses, by golly, we're going to make it through. And not just make it through, but we're looking to have our soul revived. Revive means brought back to life from the Latin. So we're looking to have our soul revived. We don't want to be simpletons. We want to be wise. And we have the assurance of the wisdom in the Psalms that the law of the Lord is going to make us wise. This is why Jesus said that not one dot will pass away from the law. This is why Paul said that the law and all of the Old Testament, all Scripture, is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching us, for training us. So it's a good thing. Now I want to start with this verse before we get into the law. Because this verse is talking about the law. So this is our first devotional verse, even though it's technically not the law, because it's talking about it. How many of you would wear this button? Three. Four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. We have 15 people out of 500 or 600 in here today that love poetry. I'm really proud of you. I hate it. The... My idea of poetry was richly fostered. I have here today, I'd like to introduce Dennis Danielson. Dennis, would you stand up, please? This is Dennis Danielson. Dennis Danielson is, he and I share a granddaughter. Yes, this is the father of our sweet daughter-in-law, Nora. He has also one of the world's leading authorities on Milton, as in Paradise Lost. And he's published on it among many other subjects. He's taught it among many other subjects. He's, he is, he is a, a poetry lover and professor and teacher. And so our daughter-in-law, Nora, grew up and she has a great appreciation for poetry because of what she grew up with. My father worked for the railroad. And I grew up with a great appreciation of his poetry. Little Miss Muffet, 
sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her. And she beat the heck out of him with the spoon. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. Most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. <laughs> this is the way I grew up. But when I turned 18 and started taking Hebrew, I learned a new appreciation for poetry. It just came late in my life. Hebrew poetry is different than typical poetry that we might read in our high schools in Western civilization. Hebrew poetry is marked not by rhyming, though sometimes similar sounds are used as a part of the poetic beauty, but it's not a rhyming. It's not marked by iambic pentameter or some other specific syllabic scheme, though sometimes the syllables are used in a way to make it more beautiful. But what really sets apart Hebrew poetry is something called parallelism. It's the idea that, that the Hebrew poet will say something, and then the Hebrew poet will say something that's parallel, either expressing the same idea with different words or expressing an opposite idea. And by doing this parallel structure, the writer, the poet, is trying to give a nuance to the meaning of what the poet first said. So I tell you that because this is poetry. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It just doesn't look poetic the way we've put it into a paragraph there. And by we, I mean me. So I want you to see the poetry by breaking it apart. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You've got there your first statement, and it's in sort of two thought ideas. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And then the parallel statement comes next. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now those are two different ways of saying the same thing. But when you look at the nuanced differences in the meaning, hopefully one plus one doesn't equal two, but it equals 11. It gives you a fuller meaning. Now, we can divide this up even a little clearer if we separate them out, and let's put some color to it. So here's what we have that is parallel. The law of the Lord is perfect is a thought that is parallel to the thought, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Those two go together. Reviving the soul is another way of saying making wise the simple. In other words, as you grow in wisdom, your life, you're, it's like being reborn. You're reviving your soul. Does your soul seem old and crusty? Do you feel dry, like you need some life? 
then you want more wisdom. That's the nuanced meaning there. You, 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 you feel simple. You feel like you don't understand. You feel like you, 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 you need to grow. Then know that you need your soul to grow as a, hum, as a person. Soul here is the, the idea of the whole being. So, but look at the first part of that specifically. So, the law of the Lord is perfect. The parallel thought, the other way of saying the law of the Lord is to say the testimony of the Lord. See, those two are parallel. They go together. So, when we talk about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when we talk about the law of the Lord, think of it as God's testimony. This is not something the Jews thought up or the Hebrews or the Israelites, depending upon the era in which you want to give it. This is not something that a bunch of humans sat down and thought, I wonder what God might be like if there is a God. What if God were one of us? Huh, that could be a song. It actually is a song if you don't know. Um, This is not that. This is God's testimony. It's not just the testimony about him. It's the testimony from him. It's the testimony that he gave. It's his law that was given to Israel. So that's what will revive the soul. That's what will make wise the simple. It's the testimony of the Lord. Now, testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. We did that. Law of the Lord is, okay, this is an extra slide that somehow got in here. Ignore all of that. That's what I was doing when I should have been sleeping. Now, maybe that's what I was doing while I was sleeping. So with that, let's look at the law as God's testimony. If I've got something, I can let you borrow it and use it. But I would think I have the right to tell you how. Um, You can take my car. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But I might say, Hank needs to take my car somewhere. Hank, where do you want to take it? If Hank wants to take it out honky-tonking, I don't want my club at the honky-tonk tank. I'm, Hank, I'm sorry. If Hank wants to take Miss Carolyn home, that's a good thing. I let him use my car. God gave his testimony. But look what God says in it. God says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Hebrew scholars for centuries and centuries and centuries took that to heart. They would take, and, and, and before the advent of the copy machine... We had these little things like this called paper. 
and pen. And if you wanted a copy of something, you would say, okay, let's see. Then their father, Israel. The Jewish scribes were so careful. They counted how many letters were in each line. And after they copied a line, they would count the letters on their copy to make sure they got the right number. They made sure that the first word going down the page and the last word of each column were the same. They made sure they counted to the middle word and they would count to the middle word in the column that they wrote and make sure it was the same. They were incredibly careful and it's the reason why the Dead Sea Scroll discoveries surprised a lot of scholars when they realized that they had a chance to look at Hebrew manuscripts that were in some cases over a thousand years older than the manuscripts that we had at the time. And they were able to deduce how incredibly well the Hebrew scribes had been keeping track and taking care of Scripture. It was something that was very important to them because God had told him. It was his testimony. And he said, you don't add to the word. You don't take away from the word. You keep, this is so you can keep the commandment. You start adding. We have uh, uh, the, the local theological library down the street, or even HBU, if you go to theirs, um, has an original King James, a first edition King James from 1611. And you can look at it, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to look at. It was a couple of years later when the King James was printed again, when the printer made an error. The printer left out a word. And that is called the wicked Bible among scholars. Now, the King James, I think there are 250 or so of those full King Jameses still around today. First edition, 1611. Wicked Bibles, I think it's down to like maybe 10 or 15. People destroyed them. You say, oh, I didn't tell you what the word that was. It was left out, did I? It was not. It was not. It was in the Torah, in the law. And they'd left out the word not. And if you were following that Bible... You would not be keeping the commandments of the Lord because it had a, the, the knot removed. Would you like to know which verse? Well, the original from God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But the wicked Bible said, Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> Left out one word. Whoops! Hence, the church begins desperately saying, uh, we've had a little printing error. We need those back, please. Don't take those home and start practicing what you read. <laughs> this is important. People are watching you. This is our next devotional thought. People 
are watching you. It's not just God watching you. You keep his commandments. Look at what he says in the Shema. Um, uh, This is actually before the Shema. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Deuteronomy is a book of Moses' speeches. Okay? So this is Moses talking. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. That you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So keep them. Do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Do you realize what that was telling Israel? It's telling them, you do what the Lord tells you to do. People are watching you. And if you do it, I'm going to make you something worth watching. Here's the message, you and me. People are watching us. And if we'll do what God says, God says, I'm going to make you someone worth watching. Now the goal there is not say, oh, then I'm going to do what God says so that I can be something special. No. The goal there is, I'm going to do what God says so I can bring God glory. I mean, you might become something worth watching by becoming the very best, smiling, happy, honest, deliberate, hardworking garbage collector in Houston, Texas. And people who work with you on the truck and people who are taking out their garbage and running down the street because they forgot to do it on time and people who really, like my wife, work so hard on making sure that one speck of recyclable is in the recyclable. I'm not very good at that, as you can tell by my tone of voice. Appreciate that in people. People are watching. And God will make you something worth watching if you do it. Now for Israel, what did that mean? Janet Seaford always likes a map, so I try to put one in as often as I can, especially if she's in class. If we go back to the Middle East at the time, we've got a huge civilization in Egypt built up around the river. Civilizations, by and large, built around rivers in the early civilization of humanity. Because that's constant water. That means that there's constant wildlife that goes there. That also means there are constant crops that can be grown from there. All of the things you need to settle down as opposed to being a nomad. All of the things that you need if you want to grow into a city or a town or a community or a nation. And so you see it there in Egypt. In addition to Egypt, you had another massive civilization that developed. What we call Mesopotamia. You have Assyria and others. But Meso, Meso is is, um, uh, middle, in the midst of, in Greek. And Potamos is is, uh, river. So... That's between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, Mesopotamia. Now, you've got huge empires that happen in Mesopotamia, huge empires that happen in Egypt. And those empires want to trade, maybe do war and conquer. But those empires, how are they going to do it? Where they're not going through the sand dunes we call Saudi Arabia. There's a little bridge right there. And it's that bridge between the nations that God was giving to Israel. 
God says, if you follow my commandments, people will be watching you. They're going to be going through. They're going to be trading. I'll make you strong. I'll make you a witness. You will testify to me and we will be something profound. But if you don't, I'm going to let them conquer you until you turn your heart back to me. That's what God gave them through Moses. They just didn't understand that people were watching them. Another devotional idea. Similar, but all of you went to school at some point in your life. High school, college maybe, grad school maybe. Did you have required courses, courses you had to take? And then you had electives, prerequisites. If I was going to graduate from high school, I had to have a certain number of English credits, certain number of math credits. If you were going to graduate from the Lanier House, which means we were, if our children were allowed to grow up, we had required courses as well. Our children were required to debate in high school. That's our sweet Sarah right there. She was on the USA debate team. One of just a handful picked to represent our country all around the world in debate. She had to do that or she could not live. (laughs) The same is true of Will, Gracie, Rebecca, and Rachel. It was a required course. Becky and I met in high school debate. You, You had to do that. You couldn't graduate from our house. Unless you learned classical music. And by that I mean true classical music. I'm talking the classics. Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I'm not talking that. Bach. You know anything that sounds like a bird. Bach, Bach, Bach. No, I'm not talking that. I'm talking the classics. People who talk like this. I mean... When you're lost in the rain in Juarez. And it's Easter time too. That's a classic. When gravity fails and negativity won't pull you through. Okay? Or tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. There are required courses in Israel. Look at the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. And you'll bind them as a sign on your hand. And they'll be frontlets before your eyes. You'll write them on the doorposts of your house. You'll write them on your gates. That's how important this is. Now we know that. As Christians we understand it. Because of two reasons. Number one. Jesus was asked by a lawyer. Which law was the most important. Out of gen- which Out of Genesis through Deuteronomy is the most important. And this is what Jesus pulled out. We also know it as Christians because this is a foundation text for understanding the Trinity. Otherwise, we'd just be tritheists. We'd say there are three gods, but there aren't. There's one. Jesus never denied it. Paul never denied it. James, in his epistle, says the demons even know that God is one. And they shudder. They can say it. God is one. So we know it as Christians. But do we understand the context of this? 
Did you know the Ten Commandments are in the Torah twice? They're in there in Exodus where God gives them to Moses. But they're also in Deuteronomy where Moses is giving his speeches. They're in the chapter right before this because what this is, the Shema, as you would say in, in, in Hebrew, this is known as the Shema. Say Shema. Just Shema. Okay, you just said, hear, listen. That's the first word. Hear, O Israel. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And, 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 and that passage is actually a commentary. It's a sermon that Moses is preaching on the first of the Ten Commandments. So if you put it into the context, you understand that it's coming on the heels of Deuteronomy 5.6. And Deuteronomy 5.6 is the first of the Ten Commandments. Here it is. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have, here we go, no other gods before me. And so the Shema, here Israel is the commentary on this. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is one God. And you're to love him with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And you've got to tell your children about him. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, the critical part of this is not tell your children there is a God. That's not what Moses is saying. Moses is not saying to have the great apologetic discussion at lunch. Oh, maybe you need to. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying tell your children there is a God. They're saying tell him who God is. What he has done done and the biblical teaching here is that this is based upon God revealing himself to us in his word and in our lives but we are to teach this to our children by how we live and not simply what we say yes we speak of it but we also put it in front of our hands we put it in front of our eyes. The, the, the Jews, there are Orthodox Jews today who actually have the, the, the Shema written in ways like where, where they, they, they wear it. They take that literally. You'll see many of them, if you watch Fiddler on the Roof, they'll often kiss their hands and touch the lintel as they go into the door because they've got the Shema there. You'll find a lot of Jewish homes that have the Shema. We've got ancient Shema's that they found that are, are written and rolled up in real tight little scrolls because they'd put them on the doorposts of their homes. And I don't have a problem with doing it literally unless you're missing the point of what's being said. Because the point of what's being said is what you do with your hands, you do because of who God is. What you see with your eyes, you see because of who God is. And let what you see and let what you do and let where you go be a testimony about who God is. Because, you know what? People are watching you. 
Okay, I had a video I was going to show. Let's see if we can get it done. Um, let's play the video and let's see. This is from our friends in Hull, England. They, they have a different Mother's Day than we do. And this is a video they put together for Mother's Day. Let's see if it'll play. Yeah, click that little, that's the knob. You don't know it right now, but I'm watching you. Watching the things you do. I'm watching the way you treat people. The way you treat me and all of the people around me. The way you live your life is having a big impact on me. When I grow up and start a career and start a family of my own, your work ethic will be on my mind. The time you spend with me, even doing simple things, will give me a sense of security. There will be times in my life when I struggle with integrity and I may be not sure what to do. But I will recall how you stopped for what was right, even if you could have looked the other way. Some of the choices you are making, I will also make. Please don't be afraid to show me your failures to show me your mistakes. I will learn from them. Are you listening? I'm watching you. I'm watching you to see if you really believe what you say about God. You're teaching me what it looks like to love Jesus. I need you to help show me the way. Show me how to live a life that isn't safe, but is good. So I'm watching you every day. You're teaching me how to live, whether you know it or not. Isn't that amazing? You know, our class, uh, some of you may not realize, our class did a mission trip to this, this congregation in Hull, England a couple of years ago. And we, we keep up with them. Melvin Tinker, the vicar there, teaches here in the summers sometimes when he comes. And it's a marvelous congregation. They watch a lot of our class videos over there as well. And uh, I suspect we'll be watching this one. So um, uh, they're watching you, literally. Um, but we're watching you, Hull, England. And, or no, <clears throat> we're watching you. Um, that's as good as I can get. People are watching you. Now, We've got uh, a little bit of time. I want to go to the next Torah devotional, and this is our last one. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. Isn't that incredible passage? 
I mean, when we think about praying for each other, I generally think, oh, I can find good prayers in the Psalms. I love Psalm 20. I love to pray that for people. I can find some marvelous prayers with Paul out of his letters, Ephesians, and got a marvelous prayer there. Colossians, such a great prayer. Of course, we have the Lord's Prayer. And, 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 and it's, it's a marvelous prayer that, that helps teach us how to pray and, and, and know what to do. But you don't generally think, I'm going to go into the Torah to find some prayers. But this is a marvelous one. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are. Now that could mean give you a huge offspring, um, which uh, uh, may to some seem to be a curse as much as a blessing. But it's not. It's that maybe, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's talking about blessing you in your life. It's talking about making your life something that's spectacular and marvelous. Think of how much you worry versus how much peace is in your heart. If you could have a thousand times more peace than you've got now, how rich would your life be? Think about the relationships in your life that are tense. If you could have a thousand times better relationships within that tense one. How great would that be? Think about your personal struggles. The things that trip you up in life. If you could have a thousand times more victories, wouldn't that be phenomenal? That's a marvelous blessing. That's my prayer for you right now. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. We are honored in this class to be a part of this church. We've got a lot of people who come to this class that aren't members of this church. We have a lot of people who watch this class that aren't members of this church. So I'm going to talk to the members of the church for a moment. I want the rest of y'all to think about your own church. Don't turn, don't turn this off. Think about your own church because there's a principle here. I, I don't stand up and speak about giving and money much. It's, it's not something that I, I, I like to talk about, to be candid with you, which is... I mean, I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to talk to juries about this all the time. But I don't like to do that. But in the process of not doing it, I'm afraid that I may not convey something that's very important to me to convey to you because I truly believe it. I truly believe as we give to the Lord that he responds to us. Because we're recognizing and we're growing in him. This is making wise the simple. And so as the church is in its campaign that it's finishing up. And there are those campaign cards there that Brent talked about. I, I'm not sitting here saying, hey, dig deep, do what. I, I, that is strictly between you and the Lord. 
And I don't, I'm not on staff here. This doesn't pay my salary. I feel so bad for people like Brent and Pastor David who, who have to talk about these things for the good of the church and all because they're on staff. And man, that's awkward. I'm not. I show up like you. I, get, I don't get anything out of saying this to you. Zero, zip, nada. No vested interest at all beyond my responsibilities as a teacher to tell you. If you do not give to the Lord through a church, I would urge you to do it. And I'm not saying you know, different people are in different economic positions, different people are in different... Yeah, I mean, God would... I, I'm, I'm all for the whole kit and caboodle. But for some people, just saying, I'm going to commit to give. Ten bucks a year is different than what you're giving now. And I really like the way that the church has approached the Multiply campaign by saying our first goal is 100% commitment just to make sure everybody's on board. It does something to you. And it does something for the Lord and it does something for the class and the church. So, don't feel guilty if you don't want to do it. Don't say, oh, Lanier, you dog you. Well, you can say that, but don't say it over that. I got a full list of things you can say you dog you over. Go to Becky. She's got like chapters you can say you dog you to me over. Um, no. But I would just urge you to consider that there is a blessing in being committed to give at whatever level. And I, I wasn't being joking when I said, hey, man, you write down, I'm going to give five bucks a year. $10 over the next two years. If you're not giving anything now, what a great step forward. What a great step forward. And for some people, you know, for some people that, that, that may be the most reasonable thing that you can do right now for the situation where you are. But I tell you, if you, if you hear the call of God to do something like that, fill it out. You won't hear anything from anybody. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to say, wait, $2.50? No. Just the idea. Because my goal is, is for God to bless you as he has through his word. And every one of those words is important. And I did not, did not, did not pull out the tons of Torah passages that talk about giving to the Lord. But I did have this passage, which is just the, the essence of, may things be greater and greater in your life. And I couldn't pass up a chance to say something about the Multiply campaign. So that's it from me. I look forward to seeing you next week. We've got maybe one or two more weeks of Torah devotionals. And then we'll start our new series. Be praying about it. But I've got some exciting devotionals that I'll be writing this week. And we'll use them for next week. If you get really bored, read Deuteronomy starting with chapter 10. And say, what is Lanier going to do with this? Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, in the name of Jesus, I do ask you, would you please take everybody hearing this message and make them a thousand times more than they are? Make them a thousand times more at peace, a thousand times happier in joy, true Christian joy. Make them a thousand times more uh, blessed in their relationships, blessed in their, their jobs. Give them peace that they've never understood before. Give them knowledge of Jesus like they've never had before. 
may they come to a greater understanding of your love and how deep and wide it is. I ask you these things as the covenant-keeping God who's promised he would do so. For the sake of Jesus, amen.